Thank you for downloading or watching our sermon series titled Redeemed in Christ. We are going through the Heidelberg Catechism. The Catechism is written in 1563 using a question-and-answer format. The Catechism's goal is to instruct the Lord's people to understand the Reformed faith by answering common questions from the Scripture. Please join us as we walk through this historic document and ponder the Lord's grace and mercy as we are reminded that we are redeemed in Christ. I think it goes without saying that the Lord's Prayer is kind of an important prayer. I mean, this is a prayer that is teaching us how to pray. Unfortunately, as we grow up in the church, many times these things can become so familiar that we lose the significance of, of what they mean, that we can rattle off the petitions and, and we can just sort of give a summary but not really think about the implications of what's being promised. And so on, on the one hand, when we hear this request of your kingdom come, it's another one of those requests that if we really think about what we're praying, it, it sounds strange. Because if we think of Christ's ministry on this earth and his walking on this earth, one of the things we say or what I believe uh, when we look at the Gospels, and I think Herman Ritterboss has done a very good job in the coming of the kingdom of showing that when Christ enters history, the kingdom is present with Christ. And so when, when you hear your kingdom come, you, you might wonder, well, isn't the kingdom here? Don't we taste the benefits? Why are we asking the kingdom to come if it's already arrived? And once again, when we go through prayer and, and we think about prayer, we, we still have that issue of God's sovereign, but yet he commands us to pray. Uh, it's not that God needs us. It's not that God's dependent on us. And so hopefully as we go through the Lord's Prayer, this, this certainly weighs on us of the great privilege it is that we can come before the Most High God uh, with our requests, with our prayers, and that he's pleased to listen to them, and he commands us uh, to pray to him, something we may never fully comprehend in this life. But nevertheless, as we have the Lord's Prayer, we're assured that he hears our prayers. And so getting then uh, to the request of the kingdom. And as I've mentioned, um, when you look at the Gospels and you see Christ manifesting the kingdom, and you see it, for instance, in the miracles, you see it with... Uh, demonic possession where Christ commands the demons to come out. That's a manifestation of the strength of the kingdom that is present with him. And so one of the things we, we've said in terms of those phenomena is that Satan basically throwing everything he can uh, to undermine Christ and his ministry and destroy his work. Uh, Christ being triumphant testifies to the assurance that he will be victorious. And so then... When we say, okay, so Christ walks this earth, he dies on the cross after living a perfect life, he's raised to life, and as he's raised to life and ascends into heaven, we, we can believe that the kingdom's here, so why are we going to pray your kingdom come when God's already sovereign has established that Christ is going to come again? Well, as the catechism goes through this, I'm going to basically just walk through how I divide up this question and answer in three points. We're ruled by God, we're preserved by God, and we're victorious in God. So we make this request, 
We're, we're not praying to a weak God who, who needs us to, to be cheerleaders, so to speak, but we're understanding and reaffirming who we are. So what does it mean that we're ruled by God? When we talk about the kingdom, uh, I think if, if, you're, if you've been in the church for a while, you're aware that there's several views in terms of the kingdom of God and, and its realization. Uh, you can have, say, a post-mill view where you believe that the world will progressively get better. Eventually, there's going to be some sort of a, a Christianization of, of the world, um, and then Satan will be released, and then you sort of have the, the fall of it all. Uh, the other view, you can have a pre-mill view, where, again, this is being very, very, very simplistic because there's a lot of variety in the premillennialists. Um, but basically, you have a situation where Christ establishes his kingdom in Jerusalem, rules for a thousand years, and in that thousand years, uh, he's going to be visibly reigning upon this earth. Uh, you're going to have a tribulation. The saints sometimes can go through that tribulation, be delivered from that tribulation, etc. But it's taking uh, the post-mill and the pre-mill are both taking the Old Testament prophets literally. So when they say there's a thousand-year reign, they're saying there's literally a thousand-year reign. Well, when I see the catechism laying out for us is what I would call or what we call the amillennial view. Now, some say that's the no-millennium view, which is what it literally means. But that's not really fair. When we talk about amillennial, we're talking about the thousand-year reign uh, being 10 times 100 or completion. We think of 10 commandments, 10 plagues. It's a number in Scripture that's significant. It's a complete full number. So thousand just means however long God intends uh, for his church and his saints to be gathered together in this world and in this age, and then he'll come again. Uh, we do believe that at some point at the end of this reign that the Lord is going to turn to Satan. When you go through Revelation, uh, we've done a series on eschatology, but just briefly reviewing, he turns to Satan and basically is going to remove the leash and let Satan just do whatever Satan wants. Uh, obviously, it doesn't sound like a very positive thing or a very positive time, but it's basically the Lord saying to Satan, here's your last hurrah. Uh, come against me, whatever powers, whatever magnificence you think you have, this is your last chance to put me down. Now, before we get too scared, uh, where do we find our comfort? Well, we know God is sovereign. Uh, God's doing that uh, not because God's looking for a worthy opponent, uh, but it's because Satan has, is the adversary who has been raised up and, or for whatever reason has decided to rebel against God and has decided to challenge God and his sovereignty. Um, God is the one who will ultimately be victorious and that's what we need to realize. So when we think about this kingdom and what it means to be ruled by God, what are we fundamentally praying then when, when we understand this scenario of Satan potentially being loosed, trying to rip us from the hand of God, because that's really what Satan wants. Uh, when we think about election and God choosing his people before the foundations of the world, if Satan can take one of God's elect from his hand, just one individual, it means God's promise has failed. I mean, that's a pretty serious thing. And you can understand where Satan and all of his self-deception is going to try and do this. And so where do we find our, our hope? Well, on the one hand, the catechism's reminding us 
that we consciously live before the face of God. We think back, question and answer 91. We want to do our good works in the confidence of faith. This is our consciousness of our relationship in the Lord. I have Christ. I believe in Christ. I take hold of Christ by faith. He is my Redeemer. I want to live according to His standard, discerning right and wrong. And I'm one who doesn't want to live according to the traditions of man. So in terms of our consciousness through this life, that's what question and answer 91 is covering. Now what we're praying when, when we're praying your kingdom come, we're ultimately praying that God's purpose will be finished. So we're asking for the sort of behind the scenes things to be accomplished and finished. And when we talk about the kingdom, one of the things our sinus reminds us of, as he says, the sense is, let your kingdom grow among us and increase by continual advances and always by new accessions. God, let your kingdom, which you have in your church, be enlarged and multiplied. Now, our sinus, a writer for catechism, sorry for not being clear on that, but he's one of the authors of the catechism. And what our sinus wants us to be conscious of is that God is the one who is spiritually ruling behind the scenes, and we're asking the Lord to continually work out his plan of redemption. And we might say, well, what, what do we do with this in terms of the kingdom? Well, in terms of the kingdom, I, I think we can get distracted and get involved in all sorts of debates and discussion and, and wonder, you know, what is the Lord really going to do? You know, I think about the story of Joseph, for instance, a brother who uh, faces this turmoil of being basically sent away, sold by his brothers into slavery, falsely accused, having integrity, sending into prison, emerging triumphant, and ultimately being exalted to a place right under Pharaoh. We think about Joseph and his functioning. What is he doing? Well, he's doing what's best for the city. He's also one who's thankful to God that in his providence, God has protected him. We think about Daniel in terms of where he is in, in his position. I always chuckle after going through Daniel of Daniel asking God, when are you going to bring us back? You know, the 70 years are almost complete. We, we want to go back to the land. And the Lord says, well, let me show you what I'm dealing with. And then he sees all the satanic forces and all the battles that are going on behind the scenes. And you have a great sympathy of saying, you know what? I think ignorance is bliss. I'm quite content not to see all that stuff going on. And that's kind of where Daniel is. And he goes and he seeks to serve uh, the Lord in his particular place once again by the protection of God. You think of Abraham and scared, uh, lying about his wife two times, you know, giving in to that temptation. Lord promises, I'll be a shield and defender. Abram says, I doubt you can really do that. I'm going to lie about my wife. She is taken into a harem. And we find again that the Lord intervenes. So we're reminded that the Lord, in terms of the spiritual presence, the spiritual kingdom, in terms of his power, he is always present with his people. We need to remember this, that when, when we get into all the, the discussions about, you know, Satan and his forces and his power, Daniel saw that. He saw that behind the scenes. We can get overwhelmed by this and think, my, Satan wants to rip me out of the hand of God. And he certainly does. He wants to rip every one of us out of the hand of God. So where is our confidence? And that's where I thought Romans was, was very helpful. Because when we look at Romans, 
There's speculation that this is probably the Apostle Paul's last will and testament. Um, in the sense that this is a synagogue or a series of synagogues he desired to visit. Never had an opportunity to visit. Heard about the synagogues. Wanted to go there. We know of his house arrest and for whatever reason he probably couldn't go. Uh, because we read in 15 verse 24 that I wanted to set in the context here. Then after Spain, he's hoping that they would basically refresh him, uh, host him. And so there's that consciousness that I want to come to you and I want to travel through you, but it seems like that desire was never fulfilled. Now we say it's the last will and testament because this is a very mature letter. Uh, there's really nothing in the letter that gives us a, a full indication of a controversy. I mean, we look at Romans 14 through the end, it does seem there may be some tensions between um, the Jew and the Gentiles uh, worshiping together and being together. But really, overall in Romans, we can't say, well, that's the whole theme of the letter. We, we, we can see that as sort of taking up some of these chapters. But for instance, you think about Galatians, you think Judaizers. Uh, you think of Colossians, you think of the Colossian heresy and the, the conflict of spiritual forces and, and the worry of whether God is really more sovereign than these spiritual forces. Ephesians, a lot of people summarize as love, etc. So you can see sort of these controversies going on behind the scenes when you read the letter. You're like, yeah, this, this makes sense. I can see where Paul is interacting with individuals, super apostles, divisions like 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, um, Judaizers, Galatians, etc. But in Romans, we, we don't have that. So it seems what this is, is Paul at the end of his life saying, I want to summarize the gospel. I want you to under, under, understand what is the gospel? Who is Christ? How do we get in this predicament? Why do we need Christ? And what does it mean to live it out? And that's where Romans is a very full letter, a very mature letter in that sense. Not to say we discount all the other letters in Scripture or all the other passages in Scripture. But that's really the contribution of Romans where it's that mature presentation of how we live out the gospel. Now, in terms of the kingdom, I think it's important that we really start looking at this from chapter 14. Uh, 14 verse 5 is where the Apostle Paul gives us that exhortation to be discerning, uh, to learn what is right, to, to be discerning in terms of wanting to walk in the honor of the Lord. And so Romans 14 is where we basically get question answer 91, the Heidelberg Catechism. Things that we do by faith, according to the law of God, not according to the traditions of man. Because as Romans 14 goes on, you, you see the controversy of what's happening, and, and we can understand this. You have the Jews gathered together in the synagogue, and then you have Gentiles coming in. Well, this is my God, this is my tradition, why are you interrupting my worship? You don't belong here. You're not a Jew. You're a Gentile. And that's where the Apostle Paul in Romans 14 is laying out Listen, things are changing now that Christ has come. If you want to follow some of those Jewish dietary laws for whatever reason, you follow them. That's on your conscience. That, that's your freedom. If there's a pig-eating Gentile who comes in and can eat meat, you tolerate him. It's not necessarily sin what he's doing. Uh, it's understanding that all that we do, we do to the glory of God. 
Now, where this becomes very relevant in terms of the kingdom of God is where Paul says in Romans 14, 17, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. And so the Apostle Paul, as he's writing to the church and writing out the kingdom of God, there's going to be, uh, obviously, some disagreements in terms of how we live out the gospel. But this praying your kingdom come is asking God to give us wisdom in terms of how do I live this out? What's tolerable? What's not tolerable, right? Because we, we don't want to say, well, everything's tolerable because it's all Christian liberty. There are specific uh, laws given to us in Scripture. And so the call of Romans 14 is having a wisdom as to what is the actual boundary that God has set and what is my cultural preference or my cultural boundary. Now, there may be wisdom in terms of where I set boundaries for myself or where you set boundaries for yourself. But that doesn't mean that the boundaries I set for myself are absolute for everyone else. Uh, these may be things that I understand. Certain things might trigger me or whatever, and, and I should be cautious when I start getting into certain boundaries of Christian liberty. But that's what Paul's saying in Romans 14. A way of understanding this is when you know, starting to preach, you have textual calls you got to make, right? I mean, you look at some of the Old Testament prophets and you don't always know. Sometimes there's different readings in the text and, and you got to make a call by Sunday because obviously you have to have something prepared. You can't just show up and say, well, here's a bunch of neat ideas. I mean, you, you have to say something. And so one of the, the things that I found helpful was from St. Augustine. And where St. Augustine says the most edifying or the, the correct reading is the most edifying reading. And when you understand that, you understand what Paul is getting at in Romans 14. That whatever promotes the peace and glory of Christ is what we want to do. Now this may be, obviously there may be disagreements, and for the peace and glory of Christ you have to pursue those disagreements. But other times we have to have the wisdom as to knowing which disagreements are necessary to fight and which ones aren't. And that's what Paul's getting at in terms of the kingdom, in terms of our living. And so we say, okay, well then what does this have to do at Romans 16? If we look at verse 20, how does God define himself? The God of peace. This is taking, I mean, may, maybe we, we, we missed the brilliance of this. But when you take this in light of Romans 14, where you have Jewish elites saying, I don't want Gentiles worshiping with me. They're not my people. They're from the nations. They're, they're from out there. They don't belong in here. When the Apostle Paul says the God of peace, he's saying the God of shalom. This is a Hebrew concept. So he's saying to the Jew and Gentile, all of us come together under the God who restores wholeness. I mean, that's really what shalom means. And so if we say, well, what is redemption? Well, I mean, yeah, it's saving us from our sins. Yes, we, we, we want to walk in a manner that brings glory to God. But, but the real essence of redemption is wholeness. 
being restored to the fullness of the glorification of what we were intended to be. It's forward-looking and present realization. And what I mean by that is we have the Spirit, we have assurance of Christ as we take hold of Him by faith, but we know that this is not the end of the story. We're looking to the fullness. And so what the Apostle Paul, when he defines a God of peace, he's telling us this is a God of wholeness who brings us together, establishes us in the kingdom, calls us as his redeemed. And so when he's a God of peace calling us together, he's the one who is going to manifest and strengthen us. Because what has Paul said in Romans? Very greeting of the letter. The kingdom of grace and peace. Romans 1 verse 7. We have then this assurance that this very beginning of where God begins, the ending of the letter we can't minimize. He's saying that even the Gentiles, in terms of finding their identity in this kingdom, have this promise of the God of peace being our God. He's not the God of the Jews. He's not the God of the Gentiles. He's a God of his people, the God of true Israel who comes together. So this praying then, your kingdom come, we're honestly asking God, rule us, grant us wisdom. May we know the godly fights that are worth pursuing and let us also know the foolish fights that are not worth pursuing. Grant us the wisdom to see clearly through this age. That's what we're praying first of all in terms of your kingdom come. But secondly, there's an assurance. Because again, we, we've introduced the whole concept of Satan wanting to rip us out of the hand of God. And that's terrifying. I mean, to be honest, that's pretty terrifying to think that there is someone that really wants to destroy us and, and bring us and drag us through the most dark, dismal places of sin and, and leave us there to be destroyed. I mean, that's, that's brutal. And so we say, well, then what, what's the hope? I mean, if this kingdom is, I hope that that Satan doesn't gain victory over me and I don't know if my, my, my God is strong enough. Well, the catechism wants us to understand that God will preserve. One of the promises of the covenant of grace we've already covered, when the Lord comes to Abram, it is so important. He comes to Abraham asserting who he is. I am your shield and defender. You think about the image of that. When Israel leaves Egypt, you have there the picture of the, you know, the, the flaming cloud and you have the pillar where the Lord is in the midst of his people, leading his people out of Egypt. When they go into the sea, you have the angel of the Lord, pre-incarnate Christ, there as a great warrior defending his people against Egypt. Very visible picture of this reality of how God cares and shepherds and leads his people. And so we, we can't minimize this. I mean, Egypt's a superpower. And in terms of thinking about fighting against them as an individual, you're given at best a pea shooter and they have all the modern technological weapons and, and you're not going to be victorious. But yeah, when you have the angel of the Lord standing between his people and the Egyptians, his people prevail. And that's something for us to meditate on and think about the reality of this. But notice as the catechism goes on and it's saying, what, what else are we praying? What, what do we desire in terms of God's preservation? That he increases the church. And so you think about that. 
Preserve and increase your church. Now again, we, we heard this morning from Hosea the reminder for us uh, to want to be pure and to want to be humble. But what's, what's the place of this wanting to be humble, instructed by God and worshiping him properly in a true religion, right? In a true religion that God has established. Well, we come before him in prayer. Preserve us through your word and spirit. Preserve us through the means that you have ordained. Think of John 10, Christ being the great shepherd of his sheep. He doesn't leave us. He doesn't abandon us. He assures us he will preserve us. We think of Christ on the cross. And, and, and you think about this, this scenario. Everyone's mocking him. He's a guy who's been accused of leading this great revolution. So that's, that's the accusation. So if you think about the crowd, so often we think about the story of the cross, but we don't think of it from the perspective of the crowds. From the crowds, here's another idiotic, idealist, revolutionary who's coming up against Rome and look at him upon the cross. The thief on the cross is something that who knows how many people in the crowd even noticed it. Doesn't seem all that significant, does it, in the grand scheme of things? Because it's rather profound. Here's a man who's lived a life of absolute depravity. A man who's been most likely handed over to Satan the majority of his life. To be hung upon a cross, he's done very immoral things, to put it delicately. And yet he turns to Christ, says, remember me when you come in your kingdom. The crowds notice it, the crowds care. And yet we find in that moment... We have a man who is truly convicted, making a deathbed, a confession, literally within the nick of time, and coming into the kingdom of God. Preserve, grow your church through the unlikely means, through the unlikely reality. And we may say, well, this, this is a, a request that, you know, we make, but, but we're more advanced and and, you know, we, we have different struggles. And, and so the resurrection of Christ is something we're, we're more prone to question as a scientific people. That's what people can say in our day and age. This is where it's fun to point out, where, where were the 11 disciples? Were they celebrating the resurrection of Christ? No, they thought there were some crazy ladies talking about some resurrection. And we don't really know what to do with this. We're thinking about 1 Corinthians 15. Oh, we don't believe in a resurrection. Christ wasn't raised from the dead. Really? So when we say that we're advanced, it's important to remember these things. The early church struggled with these doctrines as well. So when we're saying preserve and protect your church, may we believe the resurrection. May we see the significance of serving a resurrected Christ. And understanding that in his resurrection, the promises of God are grounded in certainty. But going on then, how do we know that when we make this prayer request, that it's really going to happen? We turn back to Romans 16, verse 20. And this is where I find it almost comical how the Lord presents himself as a shield and defender. Because he's a God of peace, right? So you think, well, this is a God of tolerance. This is a God who's just going to embrace everyone. Everything's fine. But then right after that, we'll crush Satan under your feet. And so you're understanding the definition of peace in the kingdom of God is not the definition of peace that the world would have us believe. The definition of peace is what I said, that shalom, that wholeness, that fullness. 
that anything that would stand against the living God would be put down. And that when you have Satan then crushed under our feet, this is telling us of the communal nature of this war. Christ going before us as the ultimate victor. Christ who is the one who ultimately overcomes. We share in that victory actually trampling Satan as the ultimate victors. And we might say, well, why, why is this so important? In Romans, this is the only occurrence of Satan. Paul's familiar with Satan. I mean, he mentions Satan. We know him as an accuser. We know him as a tempter. 1 Corinthians 7 verse 5. Uh, Paul warns Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen. Satan hindered Paul's travels. So he sees Satan certainly as being adversarial to the gospel going forth. 1 Thessalonians 2 verse 18. Uh, Paul mentions handing an individual over to Satan, being put out of the kingdom, 1 Timothy 1 verse 20. So Paul is not ignorant of some theology of Satan. These are just some examples, and there's plenty more you can find in Paul's writings. He's not ignorant of Satan being the adversary of God. But what is he promising here? Think about the beauty of this promise, again, in light of Romans 14, the Jewish uh, church or synagogue dealing with these Gentiles coming in. Well, this language echoes Genesis 3 verse 15, doesn't it? Of where you have the champion seed who rises up and tramples the head of Satan and the ultimate victory that the seed of the woman will share. We may say, well, why is that so important in terms of God preserving his church? Think about what Adam was called to do in the Garden of Eden. In Genesis 2 verse 17, he wasn't called just to keep it, as it's translated, which sort of implies that there's only maintenance going on. That's part of it. He is a gardener in the Garden of Eden. Agriculture actually is the oldest occupation we can find in the Word of God, contrary again to what the world will say. But nevertheless, as Adam is one who cares for the Garden of Eden, part of this, this call to keep it literally means guard. Guard the garden sanctuary. Guard the holiness of the garden. We find this again with the priests and the tabernacle. They are to guard the sanctity, the holiness of the tabernacle. And so when we, we think about Satan entering into Eden, what, what is he doing? What is he trying to do? What, what does he want to do to us? Well, he whispers to Adam and Eve this promise that if you eat of the tree, you'll put God in his place. God's really threatened by you. So if, if you eat of this tree, you're going to show him who's boss and, and God's going to make a concession. And, and he doesn't want you to really have your eyes open to what's right and wrong. And so I'm the one who's a great deliverer. Well, we know what happens, and that's a pure lie. Adam and Eve aren't delivered from anything. They're actually handed over to death. And there are those that hide from the Lord where they at one time had that unity with God and the joy of fellowshipping with him in the holy garden sanctuary, it was destroyed. And so when Paul, here in Romans 16, verse 20, gives us this promise that we will crush Satan under our feet, this tells us what we've said. We experience the bliss of being reconciled to the God of peace, tasting the goodness of the kingdom through the Spirit, and we long for the ultimate victory when Satan is crushed, the ultimate visible victory where we see it. We participate in that 
in one way or another. And so this is what we're praying. Preserve your church. Bring us to this place. But lastly then, we have this assurance of being victorious in God. This is where we have this, this prayer in terms of praying your kingdom come. We're asking the Lord to basically destroy anything that's contrary to him. Satan, the devil, the adversary, accuser, whatever you want to say. Destroy his work. Every revolting force. So we're saying everything that uh, stands against the Lord. Every conspiracy against his word. And so we're, we're really praying that the Lord establishes what's right and wrong. That his kingdom is established definitively once for all. That we move from tasting the spiritual blessings of the kingdom to the fullness of the physical blessings. And notice then, as we have this hope and return back to Romans 16, notice this, this assurance that one day we're going to see the ultimate defeat of Satan. And so if, if we get worried or overly concerned, and I'd argue there's other traditions that get far more worried about this, seeing Satan as more powerful than he really is. Now, I'm not saying we minimize the power of sin or we dabble with sin or, or, or we dabble with these things. But we need to keep it in perspective. And that's what the Apostle Paul is saying. Satan wants to destroy us and destroy the church. There's no doubt. That's his desire. That's what he wants to do. He wanted to destroy the goodness of Eden, the sanctity of Eden. That, that was his drive and, and his function. And Job, what does he do? He accuses Job. He takes uh, the role of, of accuser against Job. You see it more explicitly in Zechariah 3 with, with Joshua, the high priest, and Satan literally taking the role of prosecutor, district attorney, and you have Joshua there not able to defend himself. And you have the angel of the Lord saying, yes, everything you're saying is true. I will take his sins. I will take his garments, right? So it's Christ himself promising this. So we turn back to Romans 16, verse 20, and we have all these concepts that, that the Jewish individuals would say, this is our canon. These are our prophets. Paul's saying, no, this is a promise to the church. So when we're praying, your kingdom come, we're praying, Lord, we want to be put in a place where we're not looking to the priests to guard the tabernacle. We're not looking to Adam to guard the garden sanctuary. We're looking to the end of our sojourn where we enter into the heavenly glory and we are those who enter into your kingdom and into your palace and surround ourselves around your table in eternal fellowship with you, enjoying the bliss of knowing that you have overcome and our victory is sure. When we're praying your kingdom come, we're praying, Lord, keep us on this path. Keep us in this orientation. May our hearts, our minds be fixated on this reality. And so we say, okay, so then how do we know we're really going to make it, right? Because after all, Peter talks about Satan being a roaring lion. And this is a pretty, pretty vivid image. I mean, you, you don't want to get into a cage with a roaring lion. You're probably not going to survive very well. And that's how Satan's presented seeking anyone to devour, right? Well, what does the Apostle Paul end with in this verse? And so again, this is echoing um, the, the benediction that, that we read. He ends with this promise in verse 20. The grace 
of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Now we might say, why, why is that so profound? Because a lot of times we think of grace being unmerited favor. We, we can think of this in terms of a, a legal sense where we enter into the favor of God. Certainly, that's, that's part of it. That's, that's there. We, we can't deny that. Romans 5 would be a place I would go for that understanding. But there's something continual here. There's a, there's a way that Paul's using grace here that is rather profound. We think about the opening of the letter, as I mentioned in 1 verse 7. Grace and peace. So this is something that, that should make us pause. Think about the reality of Christ, the wholeness of the kingdom, the grace of God impacts us. We think about the realization of the kingdom where the Apostle Paul lays out the implications of grace in Romans 6 through 8. Romans 6, a reminder uh, that as we're reminded, we're made right with God because of Christ and his work. Romans 6 is saying, oh, can we sin then that grace may abound? And he says, by no means. And so Romans 6 is, is going through the implications of the resurrected life, that by the grace of God, we have moved from death to life in Christ. So we no longer see ourselves as slaves of sin, but slaves of righteousness. Romans 8, we think of the promise that the Lord is the one who will intervene and, and will preserve us. But what does he promise? Those whom he has called, he is going to lead to glorification. He is the one who is justified, adopted, brings them to glorification. This is by the grace of God. And so now when we look at the grace of God being with us, the Apostle Paul wants us to have an assurance. The Messiah, the Anointed One, the Joshua, that Israel looked to is the same Anointed Messiah, the same one to whom you look. Messiah, Christ, means the same thing. It just means anointed. So Christ is a Greek um, translation of that Hebrew word Messiah or, or Mishach, which simply means anointed. That's all it means. So we're looking to the same anointed one. But it's the Lord. So the Lord is the one who not only is, is the one who owns us as our master, Romans 6, we would appeal to that, slaves of righteousness, and so the, the Lord would be the one who pays the redemption, moves us from one owner to another owner. So, so we think of, of the Lord being the one who does this. But Jesus, again, a, a name we can minimize in terms of this verse. But Jesus means Yahweh saves, Joshua. And so with the advent of Christ entering history as the ultimate victorious one who's been raised from the dead, is telling us that the one who has purchased us, redeemed us, is the one who has been anointed by God for a particular purpose to bring about that redemption, and his name means Yahweh saves. And so it's the assurance that by the power of Christ, when we think about that picture again of the Exodus, the Lord walking out in front of his people, the people coming to the sea, crying out to Moses, oh, did God bring us out here to die? What have you done? The sea opening up, the Lord going before them, the angel of the Lord standing behind them in, in this warrior-type pose is sort of the implication or, or what the text can imply. That as Egypt may be tempted to push against them, the angel of the Lord will not allow them. 
That's pre-incarnate Christ. So when we think about the God of peace and we put this together, who crushes Satan, the one who gives us grace, is the one who preserves us until the end. And so in terms of our consciousness, as we said in the Canons of Dort, perseverance is our consciousness through this age. We persevere through sin. Uh, we seek to keep fighting the good fight. Why do we do it? Because by the grace of Christ, we continue to press forward in his power. And so when we ask in that kingdom question, if the kingdom's present with Christ, why are we praying your kingdom come? Well, when Christ leaves and he tells his disciples, he tells the disciples and assures them there, there is a set day. We don't know that day. Anyone who tells you uh, the day is this particular day on this particular time, they're lying to you. No one knows that day. Even Christ, in terms of his humiliation, says, I don't even know the day. So this is Christ in his humiliation setting aside that particular knowledge as he says that to his disciples. It's not to say Christ doesn't know the day now. Obviously, he does. But the reality is, there is a day when this creation ends. He knows that. He's bringing it to the ultimate consummation. But what does John say in Revelation? Come quickly, Lord Jesus. We pray, come quickly, Lord Jesus. So when we're praying your kingdom come, what, what are we asking? We're simply asking God to use us to work out his purpose. We're asking God that we'd be tuned into his purpose, right? That, that, that we want to live for his honor and glory as sojourning saints. Whether we're brought to a place of Joseph or Daniel, uh, serving in, in these high positions or in our day-to-day -day tasks in life. We want to do this for the glory of God. We want to continue to fight against sin. And ultimately, we're asking that Christ would come again. That the fullness of his kingdom would be here. That we would see the ultimate victory of knowing that Satan has been put down once for all visibly. We know he's put down, he's defeated because Christ has been raised. But ultimately, seeing the victory, and walking around his holy city. When we're praying your kingdom come, we're not coming before a weak or needy God who needs to be reminded. This is more for us, and we're in aligning ourselves with his purpose, his kingdom, and being oriented and reminded. This world is not our ultimate home, but we are destined to glory by the grace of God. May we walk in the confidence of our Savior and Redeemer, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. We hope that you were edified and encouraged this gospel message. Belgrade URC is a Reformed Bible-believing confessional church that is based in Belgrade, Montana. Please visit our webpage, urcbelgrade.com, that is URC. B-E-L-G-R-A-D-E dot com to find out more information about our church and utilize our sermon archive. Most of all, we hope to see you sojourning and fellowshipping with us each Sunday. Until we meet again, may the Lord's blessing and peace be upon you.